Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It is Wheeler Dealer Radio. I'm your host, Greg, and we have a lot to talk about tonight on this very special transfer edition of Wheeler Dealer Radio. But before we get to that, don't forget to follow us on our Twitter feed, which is no longer new, WDR Podcast, that is WDR as in Wheeler Dealer Radio, and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify, because as we have said before, we are very good boys who deserve it. Now, we have transfer news to talk about, always the best stuff to podcast about. And to do it, we not only have our regular crew, but our dearly departed Michael Cayley. He is joining us to talk about Tottenham's big moves in the transfer market. Starting us off, though, I want to go with Brian Ashlock. Brian, uh, how are things going in Miami tonight? Uh, it's cold. It's in the, like, 50s. So um, everybody is um, skiing indoors, um, which is unusual. Um, so, you know, um, but good, good. We're just celebrating transfers. Um, just in general, the concept of transfers, um, the transfer of ownership is very important in South Florida. So, um, you know, yeah. Did, uh, did David Beckham bring anyone big into, uh, into Miami? Uh, couldn't tell you. <laughs> I, I saw that the kit that they were going to release for the season and I was like, nope, I don't care anymore. <laughs> All I wanted was a pink kit. I wanted a pink kit for two seasons. They gave it to me. It's the world's worst pink kit. I'm out. I tried to care about the MLS. I don't give a shit. The MLS. Tr- spoken truly like someone who does a uh, Premier League podcast. Next up, That's coming right. to us from the uh, hills of Atlanta, it is Ben Daniels. Ben, how are things going um, in Titletown? Going well. Just, uh, you know, mourning um, the transfer of Wordle to the New York Times. <laughs> a real tough one to take here on deadline day, but... At least somebody got paid. At least, at least somebody got paid. A, true, a very appropriate day for those sentiments. And finally, as I said earlier, it is Michael Cayley coming to us from his new abode in Brooklyn. Michael, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, it was a very exciting uh, transfer deadline day for me. Would not have been able to uh, purchase this new house if it uh, next day de- deadline day is the, the, the windows the windows closed. Would not be able to purchase the house. So. You know, luckily no one gazumped us, and so here I am. We are uh, sleeping on uh, sleeping bags on the floor, as sort of like a sleepover. The new house before we move in, and uh, trying out the podcasting here. Things see, are okay. See, Let's your, find out. your wife made fun of you for investing three percent in all those Portuguese footballers, but who's laughing now? <laughs> yeah, no, having think... to deal with all of the part ownership of the house is a real problem. <laughs> there are a whole bunch of agents that we just had never met before. So if, like, George Mendez just shows up, he gets to sleep in your bathroom or something, right? I mean, I think that's just generally a rule. If, if George Mendez showed up at your house, you'd be like, oh, here's here's your bathroom, sir. I mean, it depends. Is he finally going to cut in Spurs in on one of these transfers? I don't know. Like, it would be nice. He'll make it sound like he will, and you'll give him the bathroom. And then, like, has he actually promised you anything on the day? No, he hasn't. But <laughs> you, see, you make a good point. 
Uh, so we have a lot to talk about. The state of play has changed a lot since our last last podcast, where uh, Spurs were definitely going to sign Adama Traore and then probably Luis Diaz. Uh, neither of those things happened, and I'm not sure that's a bad thing. But instead, we uh, signed uh, Dejan Kulishevsky and Rodrigo yeah. Benten- Bentancourt. <laughs> See, that, fuck you. Fuck <laughs> all of you guys. God. <laughs> Anyway, we signed we signed two guys that we basically weren't linked with beforehand before this, and completely swung and missed. Well, I guess depending on how you look at it, swung and missed on the two guys we were definitely going to sign. Real quick, because we're going to get in the guys we signed um, in a second, but I just want to address that because the state of play changed so drastically since our last podcast. Ben, how broken up are are you about not getting Triore or Diaz? I understand these are probably two radically different emotions, but. How do you feel about those transfers not coming off? Yeah, I mean, one of them is probably very good, and the <laughs> other one makes me very sad not to have signed a Dama Traore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, Luis Diaz, I spent a whole hour pretending like I knew a lot about him last week, and that was all for nothing. And uh, I guess it's good I don't have to fake it anymore. Michael, you, you are uh, a representative of Stats Twitter, which despite their emphasis on productive players seems to love Adama Traore. Um, how do you feel about us not becoming Tottenham Hotspur uh, baby oil club? Yeah, it's really sad. Like, because Adama Traore, is he good? Maybe not. Are his stats amazing? Yes. Because his stats reflect the stuff he does on the field, which is incredible to watch. It's just that it doesn't lead to, like, good things happening. And, like, clearly he... The, the deal with Wolves is so funny. The, the, the deal with, with Barcelona, because he's apparently on just 15000 a week through the end of the season because Barcelona have no money, and so they could add him at 15000 a week without it affecting their financial fair play. And all that Wolves agreed to was that they are, like, helping— is, is, is a loan with an option. They're subsidizing a bunch of the, of the wages— and they have no guaranteed money at the end of it. Spurs were offering a much, much better deal, a loan with obligation around $15 million. And the only reason that they accepted this other deal was because of Mendes, and presumably because Barcelona promised that they would pay Traore lots of money next season. Like, this is, I, I can't imagine that Dama is just, like, taking no money for no reason. And... So I, it's, it's kind of sad that we missed out on him to such a bullshit deal. But it's also like, I don't see any way in which he is a fit for Barcelona whatsoever. Like, I really wanted in this world, even if it wasn't at Spurs, I wanted to see Adama Traore put in the best possible situation where maybe he could become a great football player. And... Xavi's Barcelona seems like an absolutely god-awful place for a guy where the one main problem he has is he can't complete a pass. Look, it is deeply funny that a man who can't pass or shoot is playing for the world's foremost football snob, who's probably not a good manager. That is deeply funny, but... I don't know. I, I guess to go to your point, like, if anyone was going to make Adama Traore, like, a good footballer on a Champions League level team, it's Antonio Conte. And 
for better or for worse, we're just not going to see that. Yeah, I mean, report I, Rob, he just didn't want to be a wingback, which I get. <laughs> you think you're like, you know, the world's greatest attacker, which he doesn't have, you know, it's not crazy for him to think that he could become that. But like, he, he, I mean, look, when you can dribble like that, you should believe in yourself and you probably believe in yourself to a stupid, unrealistic degree, you know, but like the reality is, is like he doesn't have the abilities to be a great attacker. He does have the abilities to be a great wing back. Just, just sad. And uh, do we have any, I, I guess we're, we'll get into the Diaz stuff a little bit. Cause I think that kind of has to, I mean, we can use that as a transition, Brian, when you look at, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to pretend Luis Diaz had no profile. Uh, you know, he had a very good Copa America. I think Portuguese football watchers had very nice things to say about him. But, like, this – and this has no bearing, actually, on, you know, how good he might end up being. But I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, none of us had heard of him, you know, a week ago or two, a week and a half ago. It's It's very – I don't know, like – Michael and I had this conversation in our writer's room, but it's it's sort of like, I think before the links had become transparent, if you offered me Kuliszewski or Diaz, I probably would have taken Kuliszewski before, before all the, before Liverpool got involved and we all hyped ourselves up on him. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we maybe were missing out on something, but we probably would have had to jam him in in a way that we're not going to have to do with Kuliszewski. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't pretend to have seen Luis Diaz play for Porto other than maybe inadvertently catching a Champions League match. Um, I probably saw him play at the Copa. Um, I couldn't tell you anything about him. But Liverpool won him, so I guess that tells us that he must be kind of good. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's the only thing is you you if you're looking at it, you're like, oh, well, a team that's ahead of us wanted him because maybe he's an answer to their front three aging out. And you're like, oh, our front three is kind of aging out. And maybe we should have looked into that. And uh, so I, I think that's the only the only reason why you would have to look at it and think the business that we did versus getting Diaz in is is better. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what we did instead. So let's talk about what we did. Ben, I mean... Are, are, are you are you Enoch out? Did we just get? Are we just getting Juve cast offs, or is or is Paratici cooking? <laughs> I is, mean, I is think, Don Fabio got it going on? I think I still have some question marks over the Don uh, and his approach and <laughs> the way he gets deals done. I mean, you know, the fact is, is like both of these deals that we didn't do were Mendez deals, and. Mendez has a relationship with Paratici and, you know, that's a big part of why Nuno is our manager. Um, and it, it just, it's been a terrible relationship and it's been a terrible transfer approach, like from a holistic standpoint, it's just like hoping this guy's Rolodex will turn out to be, you know, the answer to our problems and that this guy isn't also talking to every other club on the planet and offering him the same deals. And like, you know, doing doing shit on the sly. So, you know, the fact that we're like left in a situation that looks like we're scrambling a little bit, I think, is a little poor. Um, you know, that said, I think Kulishevsky is 
not a guy we haven't looked at in the past. Like he's a name that has floated around for the last six months or so. Um, he is a guy that, you know, was on Juve who Conte liked in the past, who Paratici liked in the past. Like there's a lot of history there. It's not just like pulling some random name out of his ass because we got Gazump by Liverpool. Um, and the fact is, is like, he is a very good player who has had a, a tough go of it this season under a new manager at Liverpool and or at Liverpool at Juventus. And so, you know, the fact that he hasn't been like a world beater this season at Juve, I don't think should diminish anyone's excitement for the kind of player that he is. You know, a lot of people have compared him to Christian Eriksen in the kind of signing he is and the kind of game he plays. And it's not strictly accurate, but I think, the one thing that is really accurate is when we got Christian Eriksen, it was a guy who used to be really, really hyped up. And then for whatever reason, the excitement over him went a little quiet and none of the bigger clubs were interested and we somehow got him for a deal. Um, and that aspect of the transfer feels like very, very Christian Eriksen. So we sort of got this guy a little bit post-hype after his breakout year at Parma and his you know, breakout season at Juve. Um, and now... Oh, we maybe stole a march on somebody. I'm excited. The the other player we got, uh, Benson That feels a little more opportunistic to me. Like where we got someone who is a like he's he sort of does more of what I think the midfielders we have left do. He just no no no. I want to get back to I want to get back to Kulishevsky, but I want to. I want to just talk about the sort of our, our approach to these transfers because Bentoncourt, I think, does a lot of what Skip and Winks and and um, Hoybeard do, but maybe does it a little bit better than them. And, but Yuli Kulishevsky and I, I guess Lucas is the closest comparison I can come with him. It's an interesting, like, I, I get, January is such a weird window to buy during because... There's certainly some opportunism going on here. But they make us better, I think. And I think Kulishevsky, probably more so than Bentoncourt, really does offer something different that we don't... Like, it's sort of a better version of what Lucas does, but it's also a little bit more than that. I mean, Michael, how does Kulishevsky really help the team? Like, what's he going to change that in terms of how Conte can play? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Kulosevsky is a, he plays on the right, but, you know, not, he's not a winger. He comes inside, he's a passer primarily. He, he's, he's a ball progressor and a passer. He doesn't provide a lot of shots. Um, he's, he's never provided a lot of shot volume, never taken a lot of shots. Um, shoots very little from outside the box, so his shots tend to be a little bit more, a little bit higher XG per shot than average, but for the most part, what he provides is the ball progression and the shot creation for other players coming in off the right. So it's a very sort of that, like that, that, that version, that, that, that version of the inverted winger who is creating. And we, we've seen, uh, you know, Erickson played in this role for Spurs a lot. Uh, Silva played in this role. You know, he's not as much of a shot creator as they are, but like, that's the space that he kind of plays in. And it's very striking that he, none of the four players that we were either nearly complete with a deal on or, or did complete a deal on resemble each other at all. <laughs> Luis Diaz is a goal-scoring, dribbling winger. And 
Adama Traore is a dribbling sort of much. You know, Adama Traore doesn't do nearly as much in the in the penalty area as Luis Diaz does. Adama Traore is a dribbler who who does his best work in midfield, and Kolosevsky is a creator who comes in, who, who comes central rather than a winger. And Betankar, as we were saying, is just like a defensive midfielder. And but I think that Kolosevsky, as you were saying, really fits this team. Fit, Luis Diaz is like, okay, maybe he's so good you buy him and you figure out how it works with Diaz and Son both being right footers coming in off the left and maybe one of them plays off the right. I don't know what you do, but maybe he's so good you just do it. Kolosevsky coming off of the right plays right into our system in a 3-4-3, three, three, gives us shot creation that we haven't had from that position. Um, you know, it, it obviously fits in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a much clearer way. And, and Bentancur is just like a good six. He is very positionally boring. He doesn't get forward ever, but he stops the ball. He protects the back. He protects the back line, and he is a good passer. He he he's moved. What what one thing that's really fascinating in Bentancur's stats is that most of his seasons at Juventus, he's only attempted uh, maybe two long passes per ninety. And his one season with Pirlo last season, he attempted four long passes per 90 and kept completing at the same rate. And I, and I wonder if it, it, that, 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 that stat, his, his progressive passes also improved under, under Pirlo. And that stat made me wonder if he is somebody that can do more in a system that is asking more of him. If, if Conte wants him to like move the ball forward quickly and use the patterns... That strikes me as like he does have some of the ability to do that. He is a boring ass player who is good at being boring. So there's there's something interesting there. Um, Nathan Clark's been talking about how we upgraded our squad, but in positions without real need. But you know we're, the way we're talking about this is we're getting someone who in Kulishevsky who sounds like he can really help us unlock defenses, which has been a problem um, or at least a challenge for this team. I'd say over the last month and a half, two months. And then it sounds like in Bentoncourt, we're getting someone who is going to be able to protect that back line, which depending on who else we play, I mean, we've seen a lot of promise out of guys like Boyberg and more specifically, I'm thinking Skip and even to a lesser extent Winks, when they can sort of get forward and get up the field and cause some problems. And I'm, you know, like, again, I don't think this is a – pinpoint targeting our problems as a squad, but I'm not sure this is as opportunistic as it looks at first blow. I mean, maybe that's what it is, but it seems like this could upgrade our squad in some fairly needed ways, um, as opposed to just being, we grabbed two guys we thought were good. Yeah, I mean, look, you needed to do something in midfield because of what the outgoings ended up being. Like, if we don't get anybody at all, we're left playing the rest of the season with Skip Hoiberg and Winks as our three central midfielders. Um, and I, I I don't think anybody wants to do that, like, long term. Um, Conte might, something. with the way the season has gone. But. I don't know. Uh, but, but, you know, like, so, so I think there is a, you know, 
yes, this is upgrading the squad. Yes, you know, maybe uh, the the signing of Bettinger uh, specifically is not flashy or exciting in the way that um, the signings of Lacelso and Ndombele had been in the past. But like, it's functional, and and I think that's kind of the point where we're at with Conte is he's talking in these press conferences about how like our squad isn't on the same level as Chelsea, and you know we don't have you know the same talent top to bottom, and we can't do this and we can't do that, and so what we had to do in January was just kind of reconfigure a little bit and get players in that can do some of the things. I mean, Michael talked about, you know, the patterns and like maybe uh, Betancourt is, can come in and he can do the patterns and move the ball quickly. And maybe he does a little bit more progressive passing and maybe he doesn't, but like he, he's a player that, that the, the team thinks is, can be comfortable in Conte's system and can do the things that Conte asks of a player in that specific role. And we're moving out the guys that, the coach obviously doesn't think can do things that he wants in their roles. So, you know, I, I think absolutely in terms of squad building, uh, that's what this was. I think it did address some needs. I don't think this is like us totally ignoring our needs. Um, granted, we didn't get a center back or a right wing back like we wanted. We still don't have a backup striker, but like we're still addressing things that need to be addressed. You know, like Ben and Michael said, you know, we, we need somebody that can unlock set defenses. We need somebody that can play in midfield. We need guys that do boring things to make this system tick. And and we got that. And and on pretty good deals all the way around, I think. Like we didn't like we didn't blow a ton of money on these guys. We didn't, you know, pay, you know, out the nose for them. Like we just we made good signings, paid a you know, made good deals. And I think we're probably going to be stronger in the long run. I think I think you're right. The idea is that it's it's functional, and the word functional sounds so boring, but I mean that's really the name of the game with Conte is a functioning system. And I think you know we wanted a new center back, we wanted a right wing back, we wanted a backup striker, we wanted all these guys, we wanted a more exciting midfielder, but. You know, if you look at the way Conte has played, um, you know, we've seen a 3-4-3, we've seen a 3-5-2, um, and it seems pretty clear that as much as we've liked what the 3-5-2 has given us, he wants to play a 3-4-3. Um, and so in that scenario, like, you need a, a third attacker who is, as good as Lucas has been under Conte, you need a guy who can do more on the ball because he doesn't want his midfielders to do a ton on the ball. You know, they're there to be boring and protective. So getting another midfielder who's boring, who protects the back line, that's, that's more of what he wants, you know, that shores that spot up. Um, and having a right wing back would be nice because we've seen our team, you know, look unbalanced with only having Regulon as an outlet on the right and not having a good crosser on the right and a guy who can really contribute in the attack. But if you replace Lucas in that lineup with Kulisevsky, you now don't need a right wing back to carry so much of that attacking burden because he can be an outlet there um, and come inside. And that right wing back can now just support him rather than have to bomb all the way forward. And like, that's a space that Emerson Royale is way more comfortable in. Um, 
you know, and Lucas likes to drift way inside and like try and get in the box and try and score and combine with Kane. And like, it's been effective a little bit, but like in terms of the overall balance of the squad, it's not exactly what I think Conte is after. Um, and so, you know, signing him really removes the need for a wing back a little bit. Like it's something we obviously want to upgrade and should upgrade, but it's not as pressing a concern when you have a guy who can create from those spaces the way that he can. Um, and, you know, we also have Christian uh, Cudi Romero coming back in for the team after being injured for like the entire season. And, you know, when you have him, Dyer and Davis all fit, you now have three very good passing center backs. And so you don't need your midfielders to be as exciting. You know, you can allow them to be more boring, defensive minded ball circulators um, and trust that Romero and Davis are going to overlap and come into midfield and they'll be able to move the ball. And so, you know, I think while I, I miss having a guy who brings as much as Ndombele does, even if he takes something off the table, I think for Conte, having a unit that supports each other and kind of functions as like a, you know, a holistic 11, um, I think we're a lot closer to achieving that than we were having to shoehorn a Giovanni Lo Celso into the team that he clearly hates and who clearly hates playing for Conte. Um, even though I think all around, Lo Celso is probably a better midfielder than Betancourt in terms of like his overall skill set but well and then you know kind of going back to where Greg was talking to us about was the the how we came to these deals I think when we get into January or any transfer we we get kind of sidetracked by you know fancy names and you know xg and dollar figures or, or euro figures or whatever and and we lose track of, especially in January, that January is not like squad makeover time. January is unless you're new plug castle. some holes. Yeah, but then you, but then money isn't really a resource you're having to play with. Um, you know, f- for Spurs and for most other clubs, January is you know find some good deals, plug a couple holes, look for guys that are you know on expiring deals or, um, you know, have, have fallen out with coaches and, and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, to go from getting someone like Adama, who we maybe were all kind of lukewarm on to two players who were, I think mostly we're all pretty happy to have gotten them. They seem like good players. They seem like they're going to do a good job for us. I think, you know, and, you know, Ben talked about, Kulisevsky and now it wasn't really us stumbling on him, but it, it does feel like it because of the way this window transpired to be able to kind of stumble ass backwards into, oh, okay, we got an 18 month loan for you. And then at the end, there's a fee and that fee is dependent upon how much you play for us. And if we're in the Champions League and all that sort of stuff, like, like, you know, doing business like that make is is the type of stuff we're looking at in January. We weren't ever going to drop, you know, 70 million euro on uh, Vlalovic or something like that. We we spent, you know, a lot of money and maybe we paid for Vlalovic in a roundabout way, but uh, but <laughs> we didn't actually get him. Um, but, you know, I, I think I think these were the types of deals we were always going to be looking at. And 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 they were and they worked out in a, in a way that was pretty beneficial for us. Yeah, like, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, like, when we sent Lucas, however, four years ago, whenever that was. I mean, there's there's a level at which you just jump on things that work, but I do think there was some structure to this. Like, I mean, I think Diaz was much more of a, you know, like, like you were saying, Michael, like, 
okay, well, you can get a player that good. Let's just go for it and figure it out later. Now, maybe this is the same process that we ended up on with Kulishevsky and Betancourt, but, you know, like, I think those guys are much it's much easier to fit them into this team and make them sort of immediately productive, at least on paper, um, than those guys. And, it, you know, it worked out. I'm, I, like, I, like Brian said, I think I'm pretty happy with where we ended up. Yes, I would have liked a right wing back. Yes, maybe another central defender, but... Considering that Romero is about to come back and it's January, you know, I think if you have any level of realism about this market, you've got to be pretty happy with how Spurs sort of came out, at least in terms of player additions. Uh, one sort of decision we made, and Michael, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, because I think we've talked around about him, especially lately, a little bit. But I think we all saw this coming, but it's worth sort of commenting, I think, on the fact that we didn't sell Bergvine. Uh Conte seems to want to work with them. And I think that's both, at least from a talking to Greg back when we hired Conte perspective, I think that's interesting. Um, I think he's already made him look better. I think we draw some conclusions on this podcast that are not, or any, anyone, any fans talking about a team are not always informed by all the facts, but I really do think there is something to the fact that like Bergvine has not been used really as an attacker until Antonio Conte got to Spurs or at least at Spurs, and Mourinho really was playing him as just a wingback, and, you know, I think health has kind of limited him, but I think you've seen these glimpses of why Conte wants him on this team, and I don't think it's, I think it's a pretty good thing, actually, that Spurs hung on to him, but Michael, I'm curious to see your thoughts on Spurs hanging on to Steven Bergvine. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, this team is is thin, I think that it is it is very good that our our attacking depth includes like two players and not just one player. Um, I, I don't really disagree. I don't really agree with you about about Berkvine previous to Conte. He played as a attacking winger. He was just bad at it. I think that like what we're seeing under Conte is that Conte play, has played him as something much closer to a striker and has played him in the penalty area rather than driving the ball forward um, in the final third. And I think that that may be a better place for him. That would be great. I mean, I think Antonio Conte has a long track record of figuring out where someone plays, and Berkvine may not play attacking to the final third and may may play in the penalty area. But I kind of just think he's depth. And, uh, um, you know, all we need is for one of him or Kulisevsky or Lucas to be very good for half a season, and that gives us a really good front line. But I, I don't read too much into it because we would be really thin without him, given that we get, get, got rid of LaCelso and Adabale. Well, and it, but I think I by think default, he's our, he's our backup striker. I mean, just by right. speaking to death. I mean, I think that's the thing is, is Conte said, no, he's going to be my backup striker, which was, you know, a, a look for Bergvine that I don't think anybody really saw. Um, in his previous experience, whatever, however he was used by other managers, that was definitely not it. Um, and, you know, I know the Leicester game was literally 15 minutes of football, but like he did a good job of it. And he did a pretty good job of it against Chelsea as well. And um, West Ham. You know, like, I mean. Yeah, like he has shown that like he does have some tools that like make sense in that position. And if signing a real backup striker wasn't going to be an option in January at the prices you know, that are mooted, um, keeping him around to be just an extra body that like in case son or Kane goes down again, 
you know, we have somebody who can occupy that space in a reasonable way. It's good. It, it might not be great, you know, but that Leicester game might just be, you know, his Amsterdam and we'll always treasure it and that will be that. But, you know, it might be more. And if it's more, then I'm I'm glad that he's here to maybe give it to us. But, you know, if we get into the summer and say, okay, we didn't really see you because Kane and Son were fit, it's time to move you on and bring in another backup striker, I will be perfectly happy with that as well. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what he does. I hope it works out. I like him. I like the guy. I'm rooting for him. I mean, he has an Ang tattoo on his chest. What else can you want it from him, right? Yeah, Steven Tarr, the last airbender. <laughs> the last Dutchman? No, we'll, we'll, we'll get to a better joke there eventually. Um, we had a lot of outgoings. Um, I think there's one that we want to talk about a lot. I, I think someone who deserves it, but we're going to get to him last. I want to start with sort of the biggest ones, because I think they were both purchases that are I mean, they were made there in the same summer. I think they're kind of of a piece. And I think they were both people that everyone on this podcast was very high on. And that is Giovanni Lo Celso was loaned out to Villarreal. The, 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 apparently there's a buy option. There's an option to buy there. But as of the recording of this podcast, that has not been made clear what that is. And uh, Tangi Andambale was loaned out to Lyon. For uh, with a purchase clause, shut up, Ryan. Don't laugh at me. And um, with a purchase clause that is essentially what we paid for him. I don't think anyone's expecting Leon to uh, activate that. Um, Michael, you you talked about this on your own podcast um, a little bit, so I'm, I'd like to start with you. But these were guys that I think were excellent signings when we made them. They were signings that virtually any club in the world would have been excited about. I know Indombele in particular was very sought after in um, European football the summer we signed him. And I, you know, it's hard to imagine them being bigger failures than they were. Uh, I, I mean, what went wrong there? Yeah. I mean, as I said, yeah, we did, we did a, we did a whole podcast sort of like talking through the statistical analysis of this and, and, and guys who sort of seem to do it all in midfield, who, who can win the ball, who can progress the ball, who can dribble, who can pass, and and, and why some of them have, have, have fallen short. And I think that Ndombele in particular, you know, his Lyon stats were always a little soft defensively. There was a, always a little bit less than you'd want there defensively. And it certainly seemed, watching him in the Premier League, like he was needing to do more defensively, needing to cover more ground than was natural for him. And and it made me wonder about like whether there was some baseline athleticism that we missed. That that, that you know, certainly guys who have a little bit less baseline baseline athleticism, but you know, incredible passing and ball progression skills, there's ways to work with them, but suddenly they become someone that you need to build a system around rather than someone that can fit into any system. LaCelso has all has fewer of those questions. Lacelso, like, I don't know, man. I, I think Lacelso is just gonna be great at Villarreal and be really good. And we sort just sort of blew it, and it's it's too bad. Like these moves are, you know, and it's it's true of Delhi too, which we'll get to in a little bit. These moves are just statements of failure. These move moves are we have players who have very high level skills, very high level established performance, and we couldn't. Managed to put them together in a way that worked, and like 
you know, it's impressive how good Conte is and that we made some pretty good moves that we feel okay about this situation. But it is a, you know, you know, more than okay. I think this team is favored for top four, which I never would have thought this team was going to be. I certainly have them favored for top four earlier in the season. Like Conte is a, is, is a magician and a genius. But failing to turn Giovanni Lo Celso and Tanguy Ndombele and Deli Ali into like a core of a midfield, like that, that's a that's a pretty big failure. I ask, I remember with Ndombele, one of the stat curiosities around his defensive performance was the use of possession-adjusted tackles and interceptions and the idea that, well, if a team has the ball more, then we should adjust their stats to reflect that because they're naturally going to have fewer interceptions and tackles. And in that possession-adjusted stat uh, analysis, Ndombele looked really fantastic for Lyon, and maybe that's not true. What is what happens? Yes, yeah. So if if you exactly if 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 you adjust the ball winning for possession, and Dombele instead of coming up like a little light in the like three to three and a half range, comes up around four. Possession adjusted becomes about four, equivalent to about four tackles or ninety, which is what you're thinking. Okay, this guy's doing the job of a midfielder. Like it's not great. And and so maybe there are questions moving from the French league to the Premier League. You know, it's 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 you know things move slower. Are, uh, how much base, how much athleticism do you need to do that? But the the fundamental problem with midfielders is that it does not appear to be the case that there is a possession effect. The the, the amount of possession that teams have doesn't seem to affect player ball winning, and you know. If you think about it, like for the most part, there are very few points in a possession where a player is going to tackle or intercept the ball. It happens very early on in possession that these happen a lot. And then once possession is established, there are significant periods of time in which it doesn't happen, in, in which ball winning rarely happens and the ball is being circulated. And I think that like adjusting for possession doesn't really adjust for opportunity. There are clearly moments where there is greater opportunity to stop the ball, to win the ball, but it's not really a function of total ball possession. Right. So the function you should be looking at is transitions per game, not possessions per game. That would be my hypothesis. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause I think as we were looking at these transfers, especially as it became clear that, you know, not everything was right at Spurs. I think we all assume that, you know, Ndombele was more about vibes. And, uh, you know, La Celso was a matter of time. And it seems like there might have been, in retrospect, more structural. I mean, I think there was a vibes issue with both of them. But it seems like there might have been more structural issues with Ndombele. And it was a vibes problem with La Celso, who, you know, I, I'm sure this is Spurs briefing on him as he left the team. But there's been a lot over the last few days about how he's been standoffish and weird and like stuff that really hadn't been reported about LaCelso until it was clear he was going to leave. But clearly there was like a, I mean, maybe it's just another creative midfielder who just does not get along with Conte. But it's, I don't know, I didn't see him failing at Spurs. I thought he was too versatile to fail at Spurs. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's a league effect, like you guys were saying. That I mean, Spanish league generally does give midfielders a little more space, but. I thought he, he was so versatile at Bet at Betis that I just thought he'd figure it out sooner or later. 
I mean, the thing I think about with, with Lo Celso is that, that uh, Cesc Fabregas gave an interview about his time at Chelsea with Conte and how he nearly quit because Conte takes away all of your creativity as a midfielder, that you have to do what he wants you to do. You have to be like as close to video game controlled as, as, as a football player can be. And he didn't like it. He wasn't sure he was going to do, but he went and he decided to go with it. And he ended up like, felt it was highly successful. Obviously, he was excellent for Conte. And La Celso, it like, this is, you know, we're very much moving into fanfic at this point, but it certainly seems like La Celso just kind of didn't want to do that. La Celso wanted to come to the ball. If you, wa- you watch him under Conte, he's come to the ball all the time. And he wanted to come to the ball, get the ball, dribble, play some one-twos, do his stuff. And that's not what you're supposed to do when you're a Conte midfielder. And and if he just wanted to, if he really wanted to do his stuff, he wasn't going to get to. And and like I, a lot of, of, of football players have like not really wanted to play in Conte systems, especially in midfield, because of what he demands. And all right, this... Is, I know. Oh, I, shit. I know. I know. I was so close. I, I couldn't let it slide. I saw you trying to play it off, and I grinded... <laughs> than that <laughs> um and all this is on top of which brian I, I i know ben is chomping at the bit but i want you to start with this all this is on top of the fact that especially for these two players and especially for Ndombele, like spurs has probably been a pretty shitty place to be for the last couple of years i mean the guy they were bought for left almost as soon as they both got here and then it's just been you know, like first it was a, you know, it was Mourinho who, you know, I think we've talked extensively about the problems of Jose Mourinho on this podcast. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> yeah. And then it's Nuno. And even like once you get to Conte where like, okay, at least you know it's a good manager. Like it's probably still not fun at that point. So I don't know. So much of all these issues, legitimate issues that might have influenced their transition are under the shadow of like Spurs was for a lot of these guys, especially for a guy like Ndombele and Lacelso, probably not a fun place to work for the last couple of years. Well, yeah, and then you've got, you know, they're basically first full season interrupted by COVID, um, and uh, Ndombele has fitness issues at that time, and then um, has to get back to fitness while training on his own, and then you have Project Restart, and you know, there's just all. I can't. Sorts. Can, can we talk for? I don't. Want, I just want to make a point. How the English are cynical and like don't take anything seriously about anything. But somehow we all call when they came back from COVID Project Restart. You know, like we're sending fucking Master Chief to go like kill like the aliens or something. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. I, I just say it to get a rise. I know you do, is- and I had, and you were, <laughs> and you were successful. So continue. <laughs> it worked. Um, you know, and. And so there, there was that. There was this kind of the weird position that the squad was in. There was, you know, the 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 pressure, or especially on Ndombele, of being the record signing. Um, there were a lot of factors that were working against these guys being successful. And I, I think a lot of our criticisms uh, of Spurs in general come down to like. We don't have systems and processes in place. Like we talk about this with the transfers, we talk about this with scouting, we talk about this with you know finding new coaches. Like, and and what what becomes very clear with these two players is like 
what were the systems and processes that we had in place to make these guys successful? Like we saw in All or Nothing that the the system and process for making Tongi and Dombele buy-in was Daniel Levy sitting him down in like a kindergarten classroom and being like, hey, dude, don't you want to work hard and be here? Um, and then Ndombele being like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll do that. Um, you know, so like, what did we do to set these guys up for success? Like, it, it, it feels like at every instance we were, we, like we being the, the fans, the club, the media, like we were all searching for reasons why it would not succeed. I think we as a group here were, were hopeful that, you know, these guys would, a new manager would come in and unlock them and then this would finally work. And then a different manager would come in and then this would work. And then this guy has a new plan and maybe he'll make it work. And, and, and at a certain point, it just, it, 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 we got here where it's exhausting and it's not working and you have to do something different. And now it's entirely possible that both these guys come back to Spurs. They'll probably be back here in the summer. We'll probably have to go through this all over again. Who knows? Um, it's just a really, I, I don't know. It's a weird situation. It sucks, especially because they probably could have been really good if we'd have done anything at all to make it, you know, comfortable or settled or uh, hired managers that could work with them. Well, there's like, I don't know, like, I, I don't have two minds about this because I think there's a lot of like very stupid Spurs fans and pundits who have like written them off, called them lazy, said a lot of like, mildly and or extremely racist things about particularly in Dombele, there is a level at which like I have become a bit frustrated with these sort of like can't fail can only be failed narrative around these guys because like yes Tottenham has been a shitty place to be yes I don't think we've done a lot to serve them well but like there becomes a point at which like I don't know like like I feel like there is on some level more they could have done especially like I mean, I want to take Lacelso as an example of this, what Michael was saying. Like, he wants to play in a certain way, but he's playing under Conte. He doesn't want him to play that way. And I actually, like, understand how that can be frustrating, especially after the last two years. But there is a level at which, like, you are being managed by Antonio Conte. Now, I get it Spurs. I get Spurs have, like, dropped the ball and everything else since you've been here. But, like, I don't know. I feel like there is a level at which these players, like, while we could have done much more to make them successful there is a level at which, like, we have not been met halfway, or at least these players gave up at a certain point. And, you know, it's not responded well to some of this adversity that I find frustrating. And I'm not saying this to blame them. I guess what I'm saying is, like, I'm kind of glad this is just over. Like, as much as I wish that Indombo and Lacelso have been huge successes here, I'm, I'm tired of the discourse. I'm tired of hoping that this time they're going to succeed. The whole thing, and... I think this is true of Deli Alley, who we're going to talk about in a minute, is we keep waiting for something to change. And it really does feel to me like this is a do- like when you're in that relationship with someone and you know it's on the rocks and it's not over yet and you hope something's going to change. But honestly, in your heart of hearts, you know that like, like it's over. Like it's like you've hit the skids. There's no coming back from this. It's like the things that are going to take for it to succeed are just not going to happen. And that's how I feel like we've been with these guys for for a while now. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about when Conte came in here, like we're going to learn about who's going to work here and who isn't. And I don't think we, I don't love the answers we've gotten, but at least we've gotten the answers. And at least, you know, in some way, like 
I don't know. It feels like we're ripping the Band-Aid off with these guys. But like Brian said, they might just be back here in the summer and we have to do this shit all over again. So who knows? But I, on some level, I'm glad that we are at least trying to cut bait. Because, you know, while I appreciate that we didn't just, like, accede to Mourinho's demands, like, it's clearly not working with these guys. And I, I, I was getting a little tired of pretending it would. I think I'm with you, Greg. I think, you know, as a radical communist, I'm I'm always happy to point the blame at systemic failures and structures of, you know, lack of opportunity and lack of support and, you know, the ways that these these structures, you know, let people down. And while I still believe that, like, we could be doing more to integrate players to a new home and make them feel welcome and make, you know, sure that our expensive signings are getting the attention they need to fit in with a new environment and succeed you know at some point you also have to recognize these are incredibly blessed individuals who have the luxury of being professional footballers and you know at some point you have to ask them to just work hard and buckle down um regardless of how bad the circumstances may be i mean we've seen people battle through way more significant adversity um in sports to have you know successful careers and you know, not to believe anything that Jose Mourinho said, but, you know, he made a comment as an analyst about Ndombele saying, I think that it was like, he's a great player, but he is not as good of a player as he should be. Um, and I think that is a, a comment we have heard from, from other corners as well, that, you know, he is clearly talented and clearly incredible. And yet when he's on the pitch, you know, he should be a little bit better than he's actually is because he's just not giving you that, that 110%. And like, there's a lot of disruption. There's a lot of circumstances beyond their control. But like, at the end of the day, whatever those circumstances were, they weren't willing to do what needed to be done to be a success at Tottenham Hotspur, regardless of what else was going on around them. Um, and, you know, at that point, it's like, it's, whether we failed them or not, it's just not a good situation for anybody. It's not good for every press conference to lead off with questions about the guys who didn't play. What's going on with your record signing? Where's Los Celso? And are these guys part of your, you know, it's like that casts a real negative cloud over the things that are working well. And especially now under Conte, when it does feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that we are building towards something. If they're not willing for whatever reason to get on board this train that's finally heading in a good direction, you know, it's, it's over. You got to just move on and like clear the air a little bit. And like, I mean, like we talked about this, I think last time with Pochettino and the Kabulka ball, like you got to just clean house sometimes and make sure that the environment around the training ground is one that all pulls together. You know, the, the thing about Pochettino Spurs is not just how good they were, but like how much of a team it felt like and how much of a, good spirit and good feeling everybody had on and off the pitch and how much, you know, we connected with them as a group and you could tell that they loved each other and loved playing with each other. And, you know, they're palling around on, on, you know, social media stories and they're hanging out at Dembele's house talking about cryptocurrency, like whatever, like, you know, you need that to be successful and like having these guys who are, you know, just sort of, like hanging around like a fucking mopey rain cloud is just, is just bad. So here we are. 
Yeah, the thing that I keep coming back to, I'm going to use, I'm going to pick one in Dombele a little bit here, but I, the thing that crystallized it for me was like, you look at the Morcom, or as I am obligated to pronounce it, Morcambi match, and not the walk off at the end, which was, you know, not good, and I think shoveled a lot more dirt on his grave than we realized at the time, but, you know, like, just that match in general, like, I don't care, like, how much you like Conte or how shitty it is at Spurs. That's a third division team, buddy. I expect a better performance out of you against them. I don't care how mopey you are or how much the system suits you. I mean, that is, I mean, they're just not good enough. And either you're not applying yourself or you're not able to figure it out. And either way, that's a problem. And, you know, I mean, I, I, someone made a joke about this on Twitter today, but like, didn't see Winks being the victor of the the Winks, LaCelso, and Dombele midfield battle, but somehow here we are because I guess Winks was the one willing to do what his managers told him to do. And I mean, that's I think that's thing gruel, but it is what it is. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm glad we are moving on for sort of all the reasons you articulated, Ben. It's just like it's become exhausting. It's not going to work out. I'm, I'm glad we're not pretending it's going to work out anymore. So who else left, Craig? Yeah, speaking of rowing teams rowing in the same direction, uh, Deli Alley left today, and I think that is far more bittersweet than the others. I think we all regret that signings we really liked didn't work out. But Deli Alley was, I mean, just really at the heart and soul of what made Spurs such a special team under Pochettino. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I'd be far off the mark if I said he probably wasn't one of, if not the favorite player of those teams of everyone on this podcast and most Spurs fans. I think I think most Spurs fans had incredibly warm feelings for Deli Alley, and he played a real special part. So I think he grew up with those teams. And it's not just that, because we watched a lot of players grow up with those, with those Pochettino teams. But he always felt, I mean, we were talking about this before the show, Ben, and he always felt very honest in a way that not every, like, you look at Harry Kane, who even before this summer was a very, it always felt a little more calculated. Um, you know, guys like Alderweireld and um, Vertonghen always felt very attached to Ajax, and, you know, being here was more of a job for them. But, you know, Delhi because he didn't put on some of the, you know, some of the fake, like, kiss the badge bullshit, but he always felt, like, very genuine with Spurs. Um, you know, like you could tell, like, the, like the only things he did that were really sort of obvious, like pro club things was he really enjoyed scoring against Chelsea and Arsenal. I mean, he was a real genuine player for Tottenham and it was really fun to watch him. And I think more so than watching Ndombele and LaCelso kind of struggle and these great signings that we all thought were going to improve the team struggle, like watching him just sort of fall off a cliff for the last few years and there not be... Like, and I think one of the things that made that even worse, I mean, watching that him fall off the cliff was really bad, but I think combine that with the fact that there wasn't like something obvious that caused that. Like he didn't have an ugly transfer fight with the club like Harry Kane did. He didn't like have a ser- a really serious injury that he clearly like just couldn't come back from. He just sort of stopped being good, and it's been... <sighs> I mean, it's been really tough to watch, and I mean, I, I think I've I've used the language of a breakup on this podcast a couple times with these players, but Delhi's the one that I feel like it's just like it's been broken for a while. It's been tough to live to live with, and I'm just glad it's over. I, I wish him all the success at Everton. Um, I, I'm skeptical it's going to happen just because it's been so ugly for him at Spurs the last two years, but. Man, I don't know. Like, it was so much fun to watch him. And to watch him suck with just no kind of 
explanation that made any sense has made it even tougher to watch. Yeah, I'm sad. Michael, do you have any fancy numbers to explain your sadness or why he was bad <laughs> or something? It doesn't. It doesn't make it <laughs> damn lick of sense. He he like he was he had his, his 19 and 20 seasons. He scored 28 goals with 16 assists. Like he was a, he was producing like the kind of goal production numbers at 19 and 20 that you would be like impressed within a striker and he was doing all of that midfield defensive work as well you know it you know this was it's not like oh this guy could be a superstar this is already one of the best attackers in the premier league at that age and then he like in and then in in the champions league season he accepted a somewhat more withdrawn role his defensive production shot went, went up significantly while still putting up nine and ten, and then it all sort of falls off. And that's um, not the nine; it was five and three in the Champions League season, but with with better, uh, with better, better, somewhat better underlying numbers. But like anyway, it just all slows down. And at like the ages where you're supposed to be moving into your prime, and watching him like. He just wasn't arriving in the penalty area as much. He just wasn't doing the things he was supposed to be doing that were going to lead to shots and goals. And so he wasn't getting them. He's got like, you know, 1,500 minutes the last two seasons of nothing. And it is completely inexplicable. It's it's, it's a much, much deeper uh, drop-off in production than either Ndombele or Lo Celso showed both of whom were, like, reasonably productive, not as good as we wanted, but, like, good midfielders. You know, you Ndombele know, was Tottenham's best midfielder last season. Lo Celso was Tottenham's best midfielder two seasons ago. When they were in the in, in the lineup for, for, like, a few hundred minutes or longer at a time, they were good. And, and, and Delhi is something different. You know, Ndombele and Lo Celso, it not working out, has happened off the pitch to some significant degree. And Delhi's decline has happened on the pitch in front of our eyes in really, really obvious ways that are even more inexplicable. I, I, I don't get it. It's very hard for me not to tell, like, personal, emotional stories. I don't know what they are, but something has gone wrong for him in some deeper way, I feel like. And I just really, really hope that, like, going wherever it is next, Everton, is the place that gets him, like, wanting to play football again, if that's the issue? I don't really know. Something tells me going to one of the worst-run clubs in England is not going to be great for him. I like, I have, I have a, 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 Frank Lampard wants players who will press high all the time, win the ball, and charge an attack. Like, he is a Frank Lampard player. Now, so is Donny van de Beek, who does sort of the same stuff, so I don't know how that's going to work. But, like, Frank Lampard has a style of play that fits him and is, you know, clearly a motivator with younger players. So there, there, there's, there's, there is something there. I, I want this to work. I guess for me the frustrating thing for Deli Alley was, you know, like Michael said, he was at that level at 19 and 20. And we could all envision what the next step looked like. And it just never came in terms of he doesn't solidify what his position is 
you know, the sort of second striker position sort of goes away and how we were approaching things tactically. And then he has to figure out if he can play coming in from wide positions or can he play as a, as a sort of free eight in midfield. And, and like Michael said, in the champions league season, you know, he, 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 his, his defensive numbers improve, but he's not making, you know, the bursting runs into the box. He's not getting on the end of second balls. And, you know, there were times in the last three years where you thought he's going to start to put it back together. You know, under Mourinho, he had a pretty good run there where he had, you know, four or five games with a goal. And I think he wound up had seven or eight goals in the Premier League that year, um, that first Mourinho season. And you thought, oh, OK, maybe maybe Jose is is the kind of guy that's going to get, you know, a, a tune out of Delhi. And then last season happens and. Like my, you know, you know, fifteen, sixteen hundred minutes, however many, and, and not much of anything in the way of production, like nothing that we saw, um, you know, before COVID or during Project Restart, um, which I'm now just going to work into every podcast just because. Um, and, and then, you know, we we came into this preseason with Nuno, and it's like, okay, uh, and uh, uh, Deli Ali is playing as one of the eights in midfield. He's playing on the left. And, you know, he's 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 going to break up play and he's going to also burst into the box and he's going to do all these things. And we saw it so many times in preseason. And I, I you know, I think I talked myself into like this is going to be his his renaissance. This is going to be he's finally going to be a midfielder. And then he's going to also do some of the attacking things. But, you know, well, it turned out that uh, Nuno really didn't want us to do attacking things in general and specifically definitely didn't want Deli Alley to do attacking things. Um, and I just don't see how he fits with Conte. Um, you know, I, I really think Deli missed the opportunity by not, you know, converting himself into more of a striker. Um, I think... To me, that would have solved so many of Spurs' problems over the last four or five seasons if Delhi was your backup striker and if he had, you know, developed a little more physicality, the ability to have a little bit of a tighter touch, to hold up play, and, you know, I, but that that didn't seem to be his evolution. His evolution seemed to be drawing him backwards into the middle of the pitch, and I don't know. We'll see. I, it's going to suck because he really was. He was so talented. He did so many cool things. Um, the only time I ever saw him live, he got sent off, though. So fuck him. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. he is a little bit of a victim of his versatility. You know, like that 16-17 season when we should have beaten Chelsea for the title, he had 18 goals and seven assists, and Son had 14 goals. And after that, it really switched. Son became that sort of second striker, the second goal scorer for the team. And Delhi was kind of asked to, you know, drop back and do more midfieldery things and work hard. And, you know, we, we told ourselves a big story about that season of like, yeah, his numbers have dropped off because he's being asked to do a more thankless role. And like, he's doing it well. Um, but it seemed like after that, you know, nobody remembered the thing that Delhi was great about uh, or great at was his stuff off the ball, running into good positions, getting on the end of balls in the box, popping up, you know, in unexpected places and taking shots. And all they saw was that like, he works hard and presses. Um, and like, 
you know, he you're right. He he was always a little technically loose. His touch was always a little poor. His passing was a little sloppy. Like he had good vision. He was saucy as hell, but like it wasn't like always so crisp that he was like beating a man. It's often like he'd try a nutmeg and then trip over someone's leg and try to win a foul because he couldn't actually beat him afterwards. And like, you know, there are those limits to his game that I think, you know, made his him playing in other roles not as successful. And then it sort of seemed to gradually, you know, phase him out of, of favor with every manager when, you know, the reality is, is like you said, like he should be a guy in the box. He should be a striker like substance or at least a second striker. And we just never seem to find a way to make that happen. And like, you know, he did have some injuries, but like you look at his, his pressing numbers now and like his work rate numbers are like, he is still physically running around and doing a lot of things. You know, it's not like stuff that's inhibiting him from getting in the box. He's just not doing it at all. And I don't know if it's just a series of managers who didn't want him to do it for various reasons, or if like Michael said, he had something in his life that he was just not focused and didn't really care. I don't know. Or something happened. But well, it's crazy too when you consider that like he had I thought it was pretty decent. Um I think the one time he's really got I mean, I know he played in some of our garbage Europa Conference League matches, but his one real run out under Conte was that weird Liverpool game with that like who do we have that's fit lineup? Um, you know, because we're not Arsenal, so we actually played that game. But, you know, I thought he was impressive in that Liverpool game. And I thought, like, okay, I could see where Conte maybe not want him as a, maybe wouldn't want him as a starter, but, like, you could see how Conte could get a tune out of him. And, you know, again, I don't know if it's how he acts in training or it's an attitude thing or just, like, how he could be used in general, but, like, Conte just doesn't seem interested in it. And, I can't blame him after the last couple of years. Like, you know, I mean, it just seems like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a real, it's a real shame because he is a guy who he came into Spurs at such a high level at such a young age. And like you guys have said, it felt like he never really built on it. I know we've talked a lot about this on Twitter and amongst ourselves, but you know, I know, Ben, I know you're not one of these people. I always thought we'd be, like, fighting Madrid or Manchester United. Like, we'd be fighting, you know, I thought by this time, we'd be fighting off top teams to keep Deli Alley on our roster. And we're just happy to see him go to Everton for, like, the weirdest structure deal you've ever seen. Like, we're just happy to get him off our books. And I, I am happy just because it's, it's, I'm tired of watching this happen up close. And I hope he just needs a change of scenery. But... Oof, I mean, I don't know, maybe getting closer to Pep's daughter will help him in his play. I, I don't have, like, a positive outlook for this because it's so mysterious. Like you said, Ben, it's he's had injuries, but not the kind of injuries that you could chalk all this up to. Like, it doesn't seem to have affected his ability to move around. It's just, like Michael said, it's I, I think it's probably a mental thing or something that's going on off the pitch. I, I don't know. Maybe Pochettino is the only manager who knows how to get him, like, really in the right headspace. I don't know. It sucks because he brought us so much joy and he was so genuine in a way that I think footballers rarely are that, you know, it's just, it's sad to watch it end like this. I think we all would have been, there would have been a point at which I think we would have been happy to see Delhi leave for like a better team or, you know, if he just stayed better for us for longer, see him off to play Everton, play for a team like Everton or, you know, the Colorado Rapids, you know, a team of that level. 
um, you know, later in his career. But it just, I don't know, it just stinks. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad I don't have to watch it up close anymore because, frankly, it's been a pretty awful. Well, let's remember some good times because I think it's worth remembering how good he was for us and how special he was and how much he meant as a player, as a personality, as a guy who, you know, played Mario Kart and did his stupid hand over the eye thing and you know all of the, I, all of the personality that he brought to this club was just like i mean it was just infectious that palace goal of his which is in our intro is I, that's got to be one of the most outrageous things i've ever watched live like i mean i on tv i wasn't actually there but like i don't know that that was such an absurd goal like it's i mean it's it's the best goal i've ever watched as it happened it was incredible it's obscene that we've won the Puskas twice in a row, and it wasn't for that goal. We won with two way worse goals than that. Like, everyone talks about, that, like, and obviously Stage has something to do with that, that, that Zidane goal in the uh, Champions League final, where he just sort of winds up and hits a ball in the air. And, like, I mean, I guess that's hard, but Delhi's goal is way more impressive than that. Like, Yeah, I mean, just that, like, that goal, you can see it happening in his head as he does it which i think is my favorite part about it like there's some goals that you see that are just so instinctual and like it's just that you get your foot out there and it goes and didn't you do it but like you can see him receive that ball and go oh i can if i flick it and then it'll and then i just it and he pulls every single part of it off like as he's considering it and it just, it's absolutely perfect. I, and, I love every second. And it's worth remembering that that goal wasn't in some, like, in the middle of some just, like, pasting of Palace where we were winning by 5 0. That was, like, an 80 minute, 80th minute winner. Like, it was, like, an ugly 1 1 game against them. And he, like, that was a winner that he pulled out fairly late. And he just tried that audacious bit of skill. Like, you know, you know if you're a coach, you yell at him for trying something like that because it's never going to work. And he made it work. It's funny that he was linked with Crystal Palace um, and almost went there instead of Everton. Because I don't know how how you could ever face those fans having done something that that disrespectful to them. <laughs> there's, like, there's just no way he would have had a good time there. Yeah, those are sort of like the, the two sides of him as a player because his where he provided the most production was like all of that transition defense, all of that hard work, and all of those third-man runs, which would usually lead to him, like, you know, 12 yards out without a defender around him trying to side-foot it into the side of the net, and it would, like, you know, nothing impressive about it. And where he tended to be the worst was when it was like, well, we don't have a ball progression plan, so hopefully Delhi can beat a man, and Delhi can only beat a man, like, one time out of four. And so we, we, and like, but occasionally he would do it because he was never afraid to keep trying to do it, even when it wasn't. It's not the part of his game that was the best. The part of his game that was the best was much more hidden. But he would keep trying to do the showy stuff as well. And I think it was there was something very fun about that. There was something very like guy who loves playing football about that. And I, th- I think that we were talking about this in 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 the in the ch- chat room before about how Delhi never 
said to anyone that he was a boyhood Spurs fan. Delhi never said to anyone that Spurs mattered to him. He didn't try to like, you know, I love the badge. I love this club. This club's already. He was just like a guy who loved football, scored goals, and like did funny videos with his friends. And that was what led to Spurs fans embracing him. That plus the fact that he was like a complete asshole on the field in the most wonderful ways. That's the third part that we should maybe talk about. Well, and but also, but also he, he enjoyed scoring against Chelsea and Arsenal in particular so much. Like, really the only expression of true fandom I need out of my players is you to get a little bit more out of goals against those teams than you do against everyone else. Negative partisanship in everything. <laughs> I think to what you're saying, Michael, a uh, friend of the pod, Willie, described him as the most to dare is to do player we've ever had. And, you know, I think that that the way you're talking about him is like, is that like he was never afraid to do anything, whether that was nutmeg a guy in midfield, try that goal against Crystal Palace or like, you know, kick somebody in the back of the knee um, or punch them in the stomach. I guess, um, like he did like also against Crystal Palace, you know, <clears throat> he just, he just went for it in every aspect of his game and every aspect of his personality in his terrible tattoo sleeve, like he just he shied away from nothing, and it was like you couldn't help but love that, you know, as a fan. Other other people hated it, um, and like yes, it was frustrating sometimes, and sometimes he got himself sent off, and sometimes it didn't work out. But like nothing ever stopped him from just pushing and pushing, and like that's what makes again his drop off so mysterious because like he was a guy who just went for it all the time. Well, like that, like, like that, um, that twenty yard looper against Arsenal in the League Cup that just with the outside of his boot, you know, who even tries that that that, that shot? And I mean, he's the only one that was like that was so satisfying to watch. And it's you're right, Ben. Like, where's that gone out of his game? It's really and it, God, it's just it sucked to watch because. I don't think there's a Spurs fan who just doesn't pull for him. I mean, partly because, you know, he started playing for us when he was a baby, and he was so good right away, and I think we were all... You know, I think there was always that, like... At least speaking only for myself, there was always that, like, fear that a guy like Harry Kane would, like... You know, going back to when he was first here, would, like, oh, Manchester United or Real Madrid's going to try and steal him from us one day. Like, with Delhi, there was... I, I never wanted to lose him, but there was almost like you were kind of rooting for him. And it wouldn't have bothered you quite so much if he got to the point where, like, a Real Madrid wanted him. Like, I'm sure maybe if that had actually happened, I would have been much angrier about it. But, you know, I never, like, was scared of that in the same way that I was with, like, Harry Kane or Christian Eriksen. Like, I always had that feeling that if that had happened for Deli Alley, I would have felt much better for him than I would have for, you know. I mean, I'm sure I still would have been hands-off, but not in the way that I was for those other players. Because you were rooting right. for Deli in a way you weren't rooting for those Players. It being like so lights out good for us for five years that he had to move on to greener pastures was like it was like Ben Affleck and, and Goodwill Hunting, yeah. like hoping Damon takes the job one day without telling him. You know, it's like you don't want it to happen, but like good for him. I think one of the other things that I'm gonna miss about Deli Alley was just how good he was in like a muddle or like a I don't know what the British but in a clusterfuck basically. Like anytime the ball was just in a crowd of people or there was some ball that came down in the penalty area that was like, 
going to be hard to control. And there was a bunch of people around. Deli Alley somehow always came away with it. And he always, you know, he made something happen out of it. Like, I think about, you know, the last goal against Ajax. Um, you know, Urenti gets the touchdown. Deli Alley somehow gets on the end of it and just pokes it through the middle between the two Ajax defenders. Lucas is somehow there, and then we win. Like, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that he was always involved in, and it was because of his energy, his, you know, not giving up on stuff. Like, and he was just, like, we talked about him having, like, kind of a loose touch and everything, but that that what that is true, but then sometimes he just had the most sublime touches. Like, he brings the ball down out of the air uh, in, I think it's against United, um, on some looping ball that gets deflected and then fires it past De Gea. Like, you know, he he somehow gets a competent touch on that ball that that sort of puts Lucas through in the Champions League. Like, he he his Spurs career is defined by stuff like that. Like, good technical stuff. And on the ground, back heels it into the channel for Sun to run onto. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... It's it's just little things like that where, you know, like, like you know, you don't have, you know, Eric Lamella or Bone. I guess, you know, you've got the, the, the Palace goal, but you don't have, like, the amazing technical skill that, like, Lamella had. Or to the, you know, even to the extent that, like, Musa um, Dembele had where he's, you know, on the ball, dribbling, powering past people, you know, exhibiting close dribbling control, that sort of stuff. But just, like, Delhi just did cool stuff in situations where it didn't seem possible to do cool stuff. And he did it a lot, and it was so awesome. I think I'm going to read some tweets because I think this really, not from not for me, I'm not reading my own tweets, <laughs> but, I, you know, it really captures my feelings for Delhi and why this is particularly so sad. So this is from Annette Smith, Musketeer at Twitter. She says... Delhi was the start of it. His personality, his waves, his hand, gest- his hand gestures, his eye gestures, his bond with Dyer. He was the beginning of the connection built between us, the fans, in that era. The pride we felt and the warmth and love towards that team. Delhi was ours. We'd got a good one. And our connection to that era grows weaker every minute. It's sad. It's hard to tell if we'll feel that way again. But Delhi was the center of it. He deserves to be there again, but I'll miss him as I miss that era. So long, Delhi. You have all the talent and personality. The beginning of letting us see that bit of personality and humor and it consequently blurring the separation between fans and footballers. It's one of the many reasons we felt so connected during the poach era. And I think that I read that it just really resonated with me because, you know, thinking back to that team and what that team meant to us, it was as much on the pitch as off the pitch and how much that team felt like a family and our family specifically Delhi was the heart of that. He was the guy palling around on social media with everybody. He was the one in all the Spurs videos. He was the guy doing handshakes with Sonny. He was just always there breaking down that fourth wall between what's happening on the pitch and and connecting with us as as fans. And like you look at that team and as someone as the guy who was like the heartbeat of that for him to leave is really the final realization that that poach era is, is over. You know, we have, we have Sun and Kane, we have Davis and Dyer and Hugo and like, it's still, still there a little bit, but like that feeling of, of goodwill and harmony with everybody. Um, it just, it just hasn't felt like that in so long. 
And, you know, seeing him of all people leave, I think is just, it's just hard. It's hard to feel like we're going to get that back. You know, even as we see us put the pieces back together on the pitch, you know, I don't feel that same sense of warmth with Antonio Conte as I did with Pochettino. I don't feel like Harry Kane, you know, the other guy who should be, you know, holding a, a, a special place in our hearts is, is able to do that anymore. It's like Sun is a one-man show and, you know, Regulon is posting some good Instagrams. But, like, it just we've, we've lost that. And, like, I don't know that we'll ever have a team that feels like that again or have personalities that connect with us the way that Delhi did. And, yeah, he was just a special presence, I think, as much as he was a special player. Well, we, we talk a lot about how much we want this team to win things. And I think there's, at least in my thinking, there's that, there's sort of a dichotomy between I want to see Spurs win things because they're my team, but for a long time there, there was I want to see these players in particular lift a trophy. And it kind of didn't matter which trophy. I just wanted to see, you know, Harry Kane, Deli Alley, Eric Dyer, Hugo Lloris, you know, Musa Dembele, you know, those players, Eric Lamella, those players walk up some steps and lift a trophy and feel really good about themselves. And every year, and I think it's because of that Pochettino team, and I'm sure that I will find attachments to new players as they join the team, but it's hard to imagine having that same feeling again. And I'm sure eventually there's going to be a group of Spurs players that we will have that feeling about, but watching Delhi go, I think, even more so than some of the other departures we've had, like really makes you realize how much we bought into that group and how much we came to care about them um, in a way that's different from just like a team you like that happens to win things. And, you know, it makes me even more desperate. I want to see, maybe not Harry Kane, but Hugo Lloris and, you know, Son and some of the other survivors of that era lift something. Um, just to say that they did it, and it would like warm my heart. I mean, I'll take any Tottenham player lifting any trophy, but that in particular, I think, would make me, you know, feel good. Because even like Ben, to your point, like Musa Soko was a fucking donkey and awful for Tottenham, but yeah, there was probably a lot of warmth you had for him, or Spurs fans in general had for him. That is like you know hard to replicate and isn't necessarily there yet with this Conte. I mean, Conte's been in charge of the Spurs team for like two months. So yeah, we probably ought to give them some time to see how this team grows on us. But I understand what you mean about this feeling like a much more professional outfit than that sort of like warm, cuddly family that Pochettino built here. Yeah. And like when we win a trophy in the next you know year under Conte, like we definitely will, it will be sad that Delhi isn't there with everybody doing but it. Just yeah. like it'll be said, more, I think more so, but it's just like it'll be said that Vertonghen's not there and Alderweireld's not there and Musa Dembele is not there. Even Sissoko's not there. It's fine that Sissoko's not there. I mean, <laughs> there, you, can't, you can't tell me there wouldn't have been anything funnier on the planet than Musa Sissoko lifting a Champions League trophy for Tottenham Hotspur. Like, No, I, yeah, that would have been funny. Yep. <laughs> would have been heartwarming but it would have been funny. well it would have been funny when this entire podcast had that image tattooed on their backs um like yeah. we all planned on doing if we won the champions, champions league, league winner musa sissoko yep god if musa sissoko had scored the game winner in the champions league final i don't think anyone would have ever recovered from that 
I still wouldn't be sober. Like, I would just have committed to a level of alcoholism that would have kept me drunk to this day. But alas, that didn't happen. Well, I'm sorry for your family. Yeah, same. <laughs> so, uh, I guess we saved a bunch of time at the end now to talk about uh, Brian Heal. Yeah, maybe. yeah, I was just thinking. Brian Heal also <laughs> left. I don't think we really need to talk about that. Um, well, you said we were going to save the most important one and impactful one yeah. for the end, so I figured that's what you meant. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts about the emotional impact of Brian Heal going to Valencia? I hope he like gets better at soccer. I think I, th- <laughs> I think that'd be his thing. Yeah, it's kind of easy to forget he cost twenty five million pounds. Plus, he could really use that. Plus another player, like it would be nice plus, if he got better. Uh, I mean, the thing about his loan is there's no option to buy. It's just for the season. We still seem to be dreaming on him coming back, and are not like offloading him. So all the signals from the journalists are at least pointing towards this is a loan move to get better as opposed to get sold. But who knows? Hopefully it's also a low move to put on some weight. He could use he could use that and some more hair in his mustache. Just gonna grow his little bob out. It's just gonna get bigger and bigger when he comes back. Yeah, I am not exactly thrilled that he is going to play for Borderloss, who I guess has been a little bit better at Valencia, but is still a noted football terrorist. And I would have liked him to go play for someone who like tries to attack occasionally. Because I think he's just going to kind of learn how to become a wing back there, which you know we have two left backs. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not optimistic about this loan as much as you know. I think Heel does have something to offer. Anyway, I think that's all we have time for. So we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us tonight and uh, dissecting the transfer window. What's your final opinion on Spurs transfer window? Good, bad, or indifferent? It was good given the context that they had to do a bunch of this stuff and they ended up like getting multiple good young players in January for like reasonable prices, which is crazy. So yeah, that's good. All righty. Where can people find you on the internet, Michael? Yeah, I'll be uh, recording a whole bunch more takes on uh, even like other lesser soccer teams, transfer windows at uh, double pivot pod. So, you know, that that's uh patreon.com slash double pivot you can like pay me money i i, I dig that <laughs> ben what's your grade of the transfer window as we leave it behind as it slams shut in our rearview mirror i think i feel pretty good about it i think people are down because we didn't do as much as we set out to do but arsenal and man U did nothing west ham did nothing so in the short term i think we're in a good situation for top four and in the long term like michael said we got two young players at reasonable prices um that's good I feel it's a good January. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Comrade U Spurs. Sharing your uh, radical pro-Indombole doctrine. Yeah, I really haven't poured one out for Indombole. I've just been in my feels about Delhi all night. I think that probably tells you a lot about their respective impacts at this club. But yeah. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, Brian. What's saying? <laughs> <laughs> Brian, what's your uh, view of the transfer window? Uh, it's great. I love transfers. Transfers are awesome. <laughs> and and of Spurs specifically, these are great. I, you know, whatever. This is on balance. It's fine. Whatever. I'm sure in four years we'll be talking about how both Kulisevsky and Bentaker were a waste of money and how we should have had systems and processes in place to make them <laughs> successful at this club. And that was really actually the fault of all the managers that we hired um, after Conte, like, you know, Eddie Howe. and um, Tuchel. 
<laughs> yeah, Tuchel. Um, and Frank Lampard, was, yeah. Finally hired Graham Potter, um, Ryan Mason, etc. <laughs> It'll be their faults for why they didn't actually succeed uh, at Spurs. But we've got four years of podcasting till then, so lots Some, of content, guys. Lots someone, content. Someone's an optimist. Where can people find you online? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock. That is Brian with a Y. You can find me on Twitter at Skipjack0079. For Ben, for Brian, for Michael, and of course for Brett Rainbow, I've been your host, Greg. Come on, you Spurs.